Welcome to the Tear Out the Tags podcast, where you learn to remove the labels that are holding you back. Your life is increasingly defined by simple words that are meant to categorize you. These words are turned into hashtags, making you feel stuck with a limited definition of what you can be in this world. Tags, though helpful online, are ineffective at fully describing how big and extraordinary you are. Let's get started. Sadie Colvez grew up in a small Midwestern town where she learned to overcome setbacks by working hard and believing in herself. After a series of personal tragedies, she found true love, got in the best shape of her life, and built a multiple six-figure business all in the span of a few short years. Sadie's goal in her personal and professional life is to reach higher and help others become stronger and more confident. Sadie is an author to the book, Anything is Possible, and also the host of the podcast, Anything is Possible. I'm so excited to have her on the show today. Let's roll. Today on the show, I am so excited to introduce our special guest, Sadie Colvez. She has an unbelievable story and it will bring you to your knees with emotion. I actually just finished Sadie's book and I am really excited to dive into this conversation today so that you can hear her story just like I walked through in her amazing, beautiful words. Sadie, welcome to the show. Thank you, B. Thank you for having me. And that kind of like got me teary-eyed right in the beginning. I'm like, oh my gosh, because it's crazy when you're walking in somebody else's footsteps, you know? Yeah. And I felt that so much. Literally, I just told you that by page four, I just, I had tears just running down my face. I started it on an airplane. I got to finish your book sitting on the beach, by the way. So you were with me during like a really peaceful time this week, which was just fabulous. But I was really taken back by how you walked through all of this and how you've become the woman that I know you to be today. So I can't wait to dive in. Your story is powerful. So would you mind starting at the beginning and just telling us where did it all start for you? Sure. And I'll try to make it as detailed as possible where, where I can bring you guys along with the story without keeping you here all day. But um, so basically I'm an identical twin. There's four of us kids. So I grew up in a very small town in Illinois in the middle of cornfields. I was raised by my dad. My mom actually left us kids and my dad when I was seven and my dad's kidneys were failing at that time. He has Alport syndrome, which I of course have as well It's hereditary. And his, he was in end-stage renal failure and my mom left him with a massive amount of credit card debt and just left. And she didn't just leave him, she left all four of us kids. I remember my dad telling me that when they went to court, he had given my mom custody and she didn't want it. So at that point, and it's really crazy because my husband asked, he's like, so neither one of your parents wanted you. And I've never had somebody say it to me like that. And I kind of like just started bawling and I'm like, no, <laughs> but I guess my dad, he just had assumed from the beginning that moms take care of their kids, you know, and his kidneys were failing. He was going to have to quit working. He wouldn't be able to stay working. He didn't know how he was going to afford to take care of his kids. But since we didn't really have anywhere to go, he, at that point in his life was stuck with us. So we grew up pretty poor. Um, at that time, it was normal. You know, people say, oh my gosh, you poor thing. And I'm like, well, it wasn't really woe is me. Like, mm -hmm. that's how I live. So I didn't really think of life any different. Um, it's when you're in that life, that's the norm. That's your normal. Right. That's your life. Yeah. I remember one very traumatic time. I'll just point this out when I was, I don't know, I was, I had been eight because my dad just got his kidney transplant. So my dad went, had a kidney transplant. He couldn't be at our house because we had a lot of cats. So he went and stayed with his mom to recover. My mom was supposed to come and care for us that summer. He had thought that she was there, 
but nobody was there for the whole summer. So I was eight years old. It was 1989. So I was nine. My brother was three years older. My older sister was four years older. And I remember when my dad finally found out that nobody had been there, me and my twin sister's scalps were green. Um, oh my God. We ate at the day. Like, you know, I don't even know when I look back, I'm like, where were, our, where was our family? Like you have so many questions when you become a, an adult and look back at that time in your life. And you're like, what, what was going through people's heads? Like they had to have known, of course, we didn't have cell phones and things like that in the eighties, like we do now, but that was a very, that was the worst summer of my life just because we didn't eat regularly. I don't know. It, it was a really hard time in our lives. But well, one of the questions I asked you when you first shared your story with me, and I'm, I'm sorry, I'm emotional. I, no, no one like has I'm ever made me back. emotional. Like it's, I'm on the verge. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, I have a seven-year-old daughter and I'm part of a combined family. So my ex-husband and I are divorced. And when you say, <laughs> sorry, when you say your dad was stuck with you, like there's so many words that you use that are, that carry so much weight. And I just think of my own children and how that would feel. And then walking through you being alone, caring for yourselves as children. And I asked you this the first time you shared the story that where were the neighbors? Where were, I mean, like nobody noticed that four children were not supervised for an entire summer. So there was one neighbor, a friend of ours. So we'd go there and eat instant mashed potatoes and macaroni and cheese. And I'm so silly, but I remember that night. I actually told the dad, he's on my Facebook. He's a pastor. And I actually told him, you kind of saved our lives. Like, I know it doesn't sound like that, but those small little things. And I, and I don't think that they wanted us to get taken away or anything like that, but that family saved our lives. Just those little small things that I didn't realize at that time in my life. But, um, and it was crazy. We had grandparents. Like one time we came home. I don't know if my brother was at my aunt's like for the day. And my older sister took me and my sister to her friend's house just so we could eat. And there was a fruit basket on our table. So I guess the grandparents just came in and dropped it off and left. So that was my mom's parents. So, um, but his, his transplant ended up failing. So he, uh, he got CMV virus. He actually came home after he found out my mom wasn't there. And then he got sick from the birds that were there and it knocked, it killed the, the new kidney transplant. So, and then he ended up getting hepatitis C through a blood transfusion a year later, and then he could never get back on the transplant list. So, so I was raised by my dad, but I, I will tell you that he was a broken man, very broken. He was, would belittle us. He was verbally abusive, but I loved him and he was all I had. Mm-hmm. Like he still taught me amazing work ethic, you yeah. know, to pick myself back up. You can do, you know, you, you've got to be tough in this life. And he taught me that. So as I became an adult, he got, he relaxed a little more, but he was very broken and bitter through our teenage years. It was hard. And my twin sister had a baby when she was 15. So that was crazy. I went into a whole spiral with drugs and that's in the book. And basically I I know now looking back, I did that to, to escape my reality. Oh yeah. So I started into drugs and I was about 14 and I have a 14 year old with straight A's and plays club softball, totally different life. Yeah. And here I am. I'm like, Oh my God. Like when I look at where I was, I lived with a drug dealer when I was 16 years old. Like I, it's crazy, but I know now that I was doing that. Cause I, I did not want to deal with my reality, what my life really was. And well, was and an you, I like need to collect myself for a second. Sorry. I know I'm, it's a lot. <laughs> no, I, you just, you just have so, there's so much here. Okay. 
we hear people talk about these hard seasons that they go through. And sometimes people fight diseases for a long time, or, you know, they go through the loss of a loved one and, and just these really tough seasons. And these seasons can last for years and years, but yours lasted for your entire childhood. I mean, really, yeah. In the book, you have a section where you write about the few times that your mom would sort of promise to come around. And if you could kind of take us there, because that really hit me also. I'm sorry, I can't control. That was the saddest moment in my life that I remember my older sister telling me, are you guys stupid? She's not coming. Like she's not coming Mm -hmm. or, you know, but we were little and we were mommy's girls. Like we were mommy's girls when she left. My dad worked. So we loved my mom with every ounce of our being. And she said she was going to come. And we, we lived on this little one road and the main highway drove past it. So we'd look for her little red car, this little four door, little red car. And then we'd go look out the back door for it, for a blinker. Well, then nighttime came. So then when we saw a blinker, we'd run to the front to see if it was her. My dad was broken. Like it would break his heart to see us waiting for her and she would never show up. We would go a couple of years without even hearing from her. And then I, and of course that causes bitterness. Well, and was she, you know, as we was got she older, a loving mom before she left or was this, you know, she had four kids by 20. Yeah. So she had four kids by 20. She was very young. Wow. Yeah. So she was very young. My dad swears that she did it to leave her rough childhood um, to escape from it. I don't remember a lot of love from her, like hugs and kisses. I remember one instance to where I woke up and she said, oh my God, say to give me a hug. I had a bad dream that you died. And I remember that I had to been four. I was in my little pajamas. It was like my little, your little nightgown, like a, a little girl's nightgown. Like I was four years old and I remember, and it was weird. And that's funny. Cause I remember that. Cause I actually had, like, she hugged me, like, but, um, she's, she's not a loving mom. She's, mm-hmm. she's not. And, and maybe that's part of her defense mechanism, you know, as an adult thinking about how that could be, but I never in a million years could understand a mother leaving her kids. Mm-hmm. You know, you can leave your husband. But to leave your children, it's hard for me, especially being a mom. It kind of hits me a lot harder than it used to because all I ever wanted to do when I had Savannah was to be the best mom on the planet. And that could have given me a little more drive. Yeah. Like, you know what? Oh my gosh. Like I want to go get our nails done. I want to go shopping. I I want to lay down and watch Mickey Mouse Clubhouse and eat popcorn. You know, those are my memories of me and my daughter. You had no memories like that, right? Mm -mm. No, I don't. I remember going outside, not coming until the, like my dad couldn't get rid of us long enough, you know, just for a break. My dad struggled just to get himself through the day. Oh, I mean, I've got three smaller kids and three teenage kids and, you know, they're great kids. We, we have a very normal life with them and it's chaos. So I can't imagine given all of his health issues and all of like the hurts that he was going through that weren't processed and healed, you know, I'm sure you felt unwanted, but I, and I, it's just, there's so much to unpack here, you know, and I do feel, I did feel that way. I did feel unwanted, even though I knew he loved me. Like I knew, and as I got older, I mean, he, he definitely showed it. It just, it was hard for him. Really hard. Yeah. So do you remember back to when you started dabbling into drugs and alcohol and sort of turning your life towards things that were going to take you picking yourself up and leaving that lifestyle? What kinds of labels were you wearing at that time? Like what kinds of, you know, negativities or harsh words were flying around you in sort of your self-talk or how you felt like you were valued? I was worthless. I would never amount to anything. These are probably the hardest for me because, sorry, 
You're fine. Take your time. Words hurt. And I think that, oh my God, I'm so sorry. But just being told that you're not enough or that you're the reason your mom left and you're never going to amount to anything like that's how I felt. Yeah. So those are probably the biggest labels. You know, if he'd get mad, he'd be like, you whore. And it's so, so crazy because I wasn't. I was like, what is wrong with you? <laughs> like, yeah. I just didn't understand. There was so much anger. So. Yeah. And it was all placed on your shoulders. You're not only attaching these tags that had to do with being abandoned by your mother, but then you also have all these tags of all this anger that your dad had n- nowhere to put it besides you kids. Exactly. If this is an unfair question to, you don't have to answer it, but did one of you kids get the most of the treatment or did you all sort of get treated similarly? My brother took it the worst. So he, uh, poor thing, like, yeah, he, uh, maybe because he was the boy, I don't know, but I think he just wanted attention. My brother is so brilliant. Like he was salutatorian when he graduated college, which he didn't do till he was 28 years old. He dropped out of high school. I had dropped out of high school. Like that's the path we were down. But Mm -hmm. I think that he was broken just like we were. And oh gosh, yeah, there was more physical abuse with my brother. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. He got, he was in and out of jail during his um, teenage years, drugs. And I did a lot of drugs with him. Like I would party with my brother and his friends. So me and him were actually really close in our teenage years, but yeah, he took a lot of it. Well, yeah. And you're just sort of left in this. I mean, teenagers already have the inability to process all of these big emotions, right? So teenagers, we we know this teenagers already walk through really difficult times where they have all this stuff that they're trying to learn and manage and figure out what it means. And they don't have the emotional maturity to really process and understand it. And then you guys are given this blanket of dysfunction that you are also asked to walk through. Yeah. And it's to where like people, so, and I talk about this in the book too, because it's such a huge part of my life and where I feel like the people I went to high school with and junior high with didn't want to be my friend or didn't like me or because we were the poor, like we just, I don't know what I thought it was probably my own in my head. I felt like I wasn't cool. You know, I didn't, I didn't belong in the cool club, but school wasn't a priority for me because my mind was focused on survival. Like, and so when I talk about, I've been in survival mode my entire life, it's because I had to be, and you start to put up these walls, you know, just to protect your own heart because you've just been broken or abandoned. Like, I swear there's a fear of abandonment so hard to get over that. And you feel like everybody that loves you is going to leave you. Yeah. And that's another tag, you know, there it's just big time. Yeah. Like that's a really bad one. And sometimes when you have that, when you wear that tag, you'll actually self-sabotage relationships. I almost did with my husband. Mm-hmm. I almost did. It's, it's like a wall. I had one up for, well, that's, that's a whole nother podcast, but just, uh, <laughs> you know, with, uh, after my, my parents. And then when I moved out on my own with my first husband, we had a great marriage for a long time, but then, but I'm real good at like, just putting that wall right back up. Like I can do it. Yeah. I'll put it up and I'm, I'm solid. I'm like, but I've really learned as of age that you miss out on so many amazing relationships when you do that. But growing up, that's the only way that I knew how to protect myself. Yeah. I mean, how can you trust somebody if you're constantly being hurt? Can we dive into the first marriage? Cause there was a lot of amazing lessons in the book too, that came from his family and sort of being introduced to this very loving, warm character in your ex-mother-in-law. And it, it's crazy. Like when I met her, so I was 19. Um, I, 
I worked full time at Walmart. So uh, I actually, they're part of the reason I went and got my GD. Like they gave me that belief that you can do this. Mm-hmm. So when I first met her, it's funny. She actually didn't really, not that she didn't like me, but I don't think that she was ready for her son to be so serious with somebody. So at first she really didn't care for me that much. But what I realized was when I met her and his dad is they were always encouraging him, always mm-hmm. saying that you can do anything that you want to do. Like, if this is what makes your heart happy, like, and I'm like, what? Like, you mean parents do that? Like, I never have experienced that because I only knew how my life was. So once I saw that, I was like, wow, like he's doing amazing things and his parents are proud of him. And even though it's not something that like, he's not going to college like they wanted him to, but they're still cheering for him. Right. And I, and it just kind of opened my eyes to be like, wow, that's not the only way to live. Right. So that was like that my very first moment to where I realized that I don't have to live like that. I didn't know any other way. I thought that was end all be all, that that's just the way life was. So that was just an eye opener for me. We didn't have the internet like we do now. So, you know, you're, you're used to just how you're raised. And then when I saw that, I was like, this, this is amazing. I was, and it gave me what I needed to, to register for classes, to go get my GED, which isn't a big deal to a lot of people. But for me, that was massive. That was a step in the direction to actually take control of my future Right. And I didn't have to worry about all this negativity because I was at the age to where I was making a little money to where I didn't need so much from your parents. Yeah. So when we got married, that was tough too. She was not happy about it, but we got married. He was in the army, but once she got to know me, she really liked who I was. Mm-hmm. And then How she could just, she became, not? <laughs> but she, she became this role model, but she, she was a mentor, but she did not know that she was changing my life. Yeah. And Uh, anyway, she didn't know that she was doing that unknowingly me just watching her and seeing that that's possible. And it just led me down a new path in my life. Yeah. So when did you decide to get clean from the drugs and some of the unhealthy behaviors that were actually like making everything harder for you? I was doing, um, I mean, I'll be very transparent here because that's what I'm here to do is to just share my story. So I, I had started with, with pot and I, I don't ever say pot's a gateway drug. I mean, I was wanting to just escape. So I was just basically partying. But so um, it was when I started doing crystal meth and cocaine that I kind of lost myself a little bit. Like that's all that mattered. And I was just living that type of lifestyle. But what happened was, I think I was 16. I might've been 17. I think I was 17. I had been up for like three days and I couldn't even sniff anymore. Like we ended up smoking it because we couldn't even sniff it anymore. So we Mm. went to smoking it. And so I had been up for three days. I mean, I was 80 pounds soaking wet, five foot tall. Like I had to look sick. Mm. And I was in, I was a passenger in my own car and my whole body went paralyzed. Like I couldn't move my fingers. I couldn't move my toes. I couldn't even peel them apart. Like everything was stuck. And I started panicking and crying. And I saw an ambulance on the side of the road at a house. And I said, pull over, pull over. I need to go to the ambulance. He wouldn't take me. So he took me back to his house and he said, lay down. You're going to, you're going to feel fine. And I seriously thought I'm either going to die or I'm having some sort of a, a withdrawal symptom or something. I ended up finally, my heart ended up calming down. I ended up coming to, and right then and there, I made that decision. I will never ever touch. I still smoke pot after that, but I I would never (laughs) ever touch um, those types of drugs after that. Literally two days later, I packed up my little radio in my 89 Chevy and I went back to my dad's and I, and I went and got a full-time job 
And that was the beginning of when I stopped the drugs and I would never touch those type of drugs again in my entire life. I have a very addictive personality. Mm -hmm. I actually smoked more of my life than I did. And I quit three and a half years ago. Yeah. And I was even living a really healthy lifestyle then, but smoking had me. I have a very addictive personality. And it's just, I, I realized it's like a switch. It's like a light switch went off and I did not want to live my life that way. Yeah. I was like, I'm too good for this. I'm not going to live my life this way. I felt that in the book when I, when I was reading through it, it, it really felt like that. Like you just decided one day that you were going to start climbing that mountain and you were going to get to the top and you were going to heal and you were going to accomplish. And you have, you've done just that. And I can't wait to dive into that. I actually want to dive into you. You talked about smoking in the book and you actually trained for a marathon and ran a marathon. Mm-hmm. Tell like the, you had to tell this story. Cause it made me laugh out loud. Uh, I was so stupid. Like I, I did such so many crazy things. Like I'm very competitive. So you tell me I can't do something. I'm going to laugh at you. And I'm going to say, okay, that's cute. Like game on. So I did, I smoked a pack of cigarettes a day and I loved smoking. Like I would have my coffee and I would smoke. I I don't know. I started when I was 14 years old and it just had me. And I don't remember what it was like not to smoke. You know, you're talking 13, 14 years old. That's all you remember. I was 20. I don't know how old I was when I did my marathon. It was, gosh, it really was 2015. I think it was 2015. I was still a smoker. And I remember five hours, like 20 something minutes, I ran up and I patted my husband on his side. And I was like, Hey babe, give me my smokes. And my brother-in-law looked at me. He's like, are you crazy? I'm like, no, it's been five hours. I haven't had a cigarette. Like I need a cigarette. It was so dumb. And people are like, you ran a marathon. I'm like, yeah. And people would always say, you know, what's the point of working out so hard if you're smoking? I'm like, well, I could not work out and smoke, or I could work out and smoke. Like, I don't know. Like people just are so crazy with how they think of things, but Now I'm like that ex-smoker that can't stand it. Like, oh my gosh. Like I can't, I don't want it near me. Like I don't want it in my lungs. It stinks. I can smell it half a mile down the road. It's awful. Yeah. It's like, it's, it's, it was the last of the toxicity to get out of your body. Right. I did it. And I felt, I tell my twin sister all the time. It's the most freeing feeling in the world because nicotine is like that commercial that pulls you down. Yeah. Just like you see in that commercial, you would want to like, kill somebody to have a cigarette, right? Like your mood, your anger, that nicotine is the devil. And as soon as I had that nicotine out of my system, I had this freeing feeling of, Oh my gosh, like I'm free. I can do whatever I want. I can sit in the airport for five hours and I don't need a cigarette. Like this is amazing. That's incredible. I'm looking at Sadie. So I can see like this, just the joy. She has this huge smile on her face and it's just this huge overcoming of all of the things you've I'm overcome very a lot. With my hands. <laughs> well, no, but I'm, I'm, you're just, you're so joy-filled and you really have accomplished. So I, I want to dive into what you've achieved and you've achieved great monetary success. And I want to highlight that, but I also want to highlight how the achievements that you've made, they haven't necessarily been about the money. They've been about all of this overcoming and becoming what you were destined to become. And you really highlight this in your book, anything is possible in this. Oh my gosh. The message of anything is possible. You, you couldn't have told it any better than you did. And your story is so profound because you've done a lot. You've done a marathon. You've done a bodybuilding competition. You've written a book. You make well over six figures. Tell me, how did you shed all of the crap? And then accomplish all of this amazing stuff? Well, that that's a, a loaded question because a lot of it's like when you're doing it, you don't realize 
you know, like people say, wow, Sadie, you know, you're a published author or, you know, you, you have a podcast, you, you know, you've made a million dollars or whatever. And I'm like, oh my gosh, like I have to sit back and think, oh my gosh, like I've done this mm-hmm. because you, you're so in the moment that you don't realize it's really me doing this, if that makes sense. But totally. so I met my husband and I was still working corporate America when I, when I met my husband and he's so supportive and amazing. And he's air force and the best dad and stepdad on the planet. But so I, I am very blessed with, with having him in my life, but I will tell you that all of this didn't come without failing. And I guess I can't call it failing because it got me where I'm at, but lessons or small failures, we'll just call them small failures or setbacks. I truly feel that I'm so driven and I have so much self-motivation that I have this ingrained in me that I, I'm going to win. Like I'm, I'm going to win at anything that I put my mind to. Even if I have these little setbacks, I'm able to pick myself back up and try it one more time. But I will tell you that in 2017, the two businesses that I had tried before, they just, they didn't fail. I they just weren't moving like I wanted them to. And it just wasn't, I, I didn't have that passion in my heart and my soul, you know, like I just kind of had lost that. So when 2017 came around and somebody brought an opportunity to me, I kind of thought, I was like, you know what? I'm just really exhausted. Like, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, you're an entrepreneur, you get tired. You're yeah. like, I'm, I'm just tired. And I, I sat and thought about it for a while. I was like, well, you know, my daughter's in private school. I really do probably need to do something. And come on, like, I'm not going to have fun if I'm not doing something. Right, right. So I was like, you know what, I'm going to give this one more shot, Sadie, like you, you owe this to yourself to give this one more shot. And thank God I did, because I wouldn't be where I'm at today. And I worked really, really hard to get to where I'm at to build the network that I have. But what has been more exciting and powerful to me is that I've been able to change people's lives along the way, which I didn't necessarily know that was going to happen when I started. Mm-hmm. But then like they say, I, I listen to Craig Rochelle all the time with Life Church, and I, I love his podcast. And I had reached all these goals in my life and I didn't find that happiness. I'm like, what? I should be thrilled. I should be showering mm-hmm. with just gratitude, which I am, but I didn't have that happiness. And then he had said something about that. If you make your life and your goals just about your own success, you will never find happiness. True happiness comes from helping other people and changing other people's lives. And I'm like, oh my God, it hit me like a ton of bricks. I'm like, I am here to change other people's lives. Like, that's great. And that's why I changed mine is so I can take what I've learned and, and, and share that with the world. And even if I can change one life a day, that's enough. I don't need to go out there and sell a million copies of my book. But if yeah. I can touch one person a day, that is what I'm here for. So no, it's not all about the money. That reward is so great for you. I mean, I just see it so much in how you interact with people. You give so generously. I have an important question to ask you because my mission and this message, tear out the tags, my company is called Embolden Label. And to be emboldened is to have courage or confidence to do something or show up in a different way. And we really build a community that not only wants to become emboldened, but who then wants to take what they've learned and embolden others. And I think when you look at someone like you, the, the word that really just pops for me is you are so resilient. You are someone who just keeps becoming more and more strong and resilient as you climb, as you achieve. And so if I'm someone who's struggling in all of my junk right now and all of my hurts and all my childhood crap, and I'm looking at Sadie, I'm like, yeah, she did it, but I can't do it. How would you reach someone and tell them anything is possible? You can do this. So um, that's a really good question. So basically, when I talk to people about this, I try to think of if I'm talking to my childhood self, 
because there's a lot of times when I was that child to where I was sitting there crying in my bed. Gosh, it's, it's really hard. And if, if this is you, I, I understand what you're going through. I do wholeheartedly. And I know that it feels like it can't get better and that this is the only way to live, but I'm here to tell you that it's not. And the best thing that you can do is believe in yourself, self-belief. You have got to believe in yourself and know that you can create any life that you want to create. The parents that you have are, are teaching you a way that they live their lives. You know, like I try to sit back and I think, you know, how society has programmed us to, to think and believe when in reality, it is up to you to create the exact life that you want. It's not up to society. Right. So just know that you are enough exactly who you are and that you're here to change the world in one way, shape or form. And just believe in that wholeheartedly and take it with you. And it's not going to be easy. You're going to have a lot of setbacks, but I promise you it's always worth it. Well, and I'd love to highlight, you know, you, you speak so fondly of your husband. I'd love to highlight, what is it like for you to have a man who just loves you so much? I mean, I, I, you know, get to see the posts on social media and he just adores you. And so tell me what that's like to go from feeling like someone was stuck with you to having a man who really honors and worships the ground you walk on and just respects you as an equal. Cause from what I know of you, you guys have a deep and meaningful friendship underneath a really powerful and strong marriage. We do. And a lot of times I feel sorry for him because could you imagine <laughs> being married to me? <laughs> yes, I can. It sounds fabulous. You know? <laughs> because strong women, I mean, it's, it's hard. I, you know, and it's not easy for, for a man, but my husband, oh my gosh, like I, I would say I'm very spoiled, but he's also, he listens. Mm -hmm. he sits back and he'll really listen to how I feel and why I feel a certain way. But I will tell you that it takes a very special man to deal with me. And I, and my daddy used to say that, like, you're going to have to have like a special man, but it, it's so true. And he's so understanding. He doesn't ever overreact. He's that chill, like, and he can always like fix, fix a, a, a situation. And I'm more like fly off a handle, like, Oh my God, like I'm a squirrel, like everything, my world's coming to an end. And he's like, relax. It's okay. And he's just that for me. And, um, I'm blessed. I am absolutely blessed. It's like, all I want to do is sit here and pour into you and be like, I'm just going to like cry. Like now I'm probably going to cry for the rest of the day. I'm like, Oh my gosh, I'm all in my emotions. Like I, I've done a couple podcasts before and I've never actually talked in depth, but of course I think you're the first person that's read my book that mm -hmm. was able to really draw that out. And that book was very hard for me to do. And I remember being asked questions to pull out more information. And like with my husband, he helped me. He helped pull stuff out of me because he knew what questions to ask. And he's the one who said that he stopped and looked at me like about my parents. And I just kind of like lost it. Like I just like, it was a very hard, hard thing to do for your heart and soul into something and then share it with the entire world. Even if you've worked through the pain that you resuppress it, right? Cause you don't want to live in that all the time. So to pull it up for a book, people don't really understand not only pulling it all back up to the surface, but also this filter that sits over all this content. And it's funny because even though all these people have hurt you and all of the characters in the book being your family and, you know, the folks that you interacted with caused hurt and caused tags and caused all the things that you had to overcome, you still feel guilty, sort of exposing all your stuff, right? There's this it's hard. There's a really, really hard There's a really confronting process to come out and say, all right, this is the truth. 
and you all have to deal with me now sharing our story. So what well, was that? I think, well, and what I love about it is I hope that I'm showing other people that it's okay. It is okay to be hurt and to talk about it and try to help other people with your experiences. That's your story in your life and it's okay. And I yeah. wish people would be more open with that than feel like they can't say anything because it might affect somebody else. Well, what about you? Yeah. How do you feel about protecting yourself and drawing a boundary with people who just have access to hurt you more? You know, cause you and I talked about this, just putting boundaries in place, having certain families, family members that are closer or not closer to you. I mean, what would you tell someone who was going through this and they were just repeatedly exposed to someone telling them they aren't good enough or telling them they're unworthy or telling them they're, they're stupid or whatever the tags are that are just, they're meant to relentlessly peck at you until you have no self-worth left. Thank you for asking that because I wish somebody would have talked to me when I was at that point in my life and told me just this. One thing that that I've learned as an adult, which I wish my parents or somebody would have taught me, is that you are who you surround yourself with. Sometimes you have to get those negative people that are pecking at you. You have to limit your interaction with them. If they're a parent, that's going to be a little more difficult. Mm -hmm. But if you have the ability to limit your contact with certain people, I'm not saying if it's family that you love, I understand. I have many family members that I love that I've limited my contact with for my own state of mind, for my own happiness and joy. You have to make sure you're surrounding yourself with people that only make you better. Mm -hmm. Because if it's somebody that's going to make you feel less than, normally that's a situation with them personally and has nothing to do with you. They don't want you to grow and to move on and to flourish because you're going to leave them behind. So it's it's a personal thing. It has nothing to do with you. So just surround yourself with people that are going to make you better. And, you know, people talk about jealousy all the time. That's not what this is. Like, I want to be around people that are making the income I want to make. I want to be around people that are living the life that I want to live because I'm going to learn from them and I'm going to live that way. It's not a jealousy thing. It's like, you're my mentor. You're amazing. I'm going to follow your lead. What are you doing? And if you're in a position where you've achieved, we also need to reverse engineer that. So folks that have overcome and achieved and done all these amazing things, they need to also be leaders who aren't threatened by someone wanting what they have, because that's what makes the world better. And that's what I see in you is you are not looking to hold anyone down. You are not looking to be above anyone else. You're literally every day, just like with a rope, just pulling people up with you and, and teaching people how to achieve and, and become anything they want to be. Yep. Bring them all with you. Like the more the merrier. There is room for everybody to win. You'll see some memes on Facebook. It's so true. Like there is room for everybody and we all have our own race. Like be your race isn't my race. I'm cheering for you. I want you to be as badass as possible. That's your race. And I want you to freaking win it. Yeah. So, and I, and I feel that way with every single person I encounter. Yeah. I can't wait to see what's next for you. I would ask you, but I don't want to put you on the spot unless you have something. Like I've, I've got all kinds of stuff I want to do. I was going to say, I'm sure you have a list for 2021. I've got a whole board over here. So, (laughs) Well, where can we get in touch with you? Where can everybody just reach out and get to know you, get to know what you're about and and learn more? So um, I do have a a website. It's sadiecolvis.com. You can hear my podcast there. You can find my book there. And of course you can find me on social media. So I'm under Sadie Colvis and I love social media. So I'm very active on there. I basically live my life on there because I'm constantly just trying to share stories that could possibly impact somebody else's life. 
Yeah. Fantastic. You are very good at social media. You, I could help. I could use your help with that. It's, it's fun for me. So that's awesome. Oh, and I do some personal training. So, but I do that just for fun. Like I'm in some groups and I'm, I'm one of the trainers in there that do some live workouts. I, I swear every that. time I talk to you, I'm like, how do you have the time for uh, you do so much? It's just unbelievable. I need a power nap. They're going to be a 15 minute power. Yeah. Nap. Do you sleep the, at night? You know, I actually slept through the night last night. First time in a long time, but I had a power nap. And then I'm like, okay, I'm ready to go. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us and cutting out some time in your busy day. I'm just thrilled to have you on the show. So thank you so much. Thank you, B. I appreciate it very much.